2: On Commons People this week, Labour contenders are whittled down. We cannot
3: fight the Tories if we're fighting each other. Factualism has to go. Brexit battle lines are drawn. You, you always have to budget for a complete failure of common sense. And just
2: what is Johnsonism?
3: Well, it's not for government to, you could to, step, to in. step in and save uh, companies that simply run into trouble.
2: Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Waugh. Hi, Arj. Hey, Paul. We've also got Rachel Wearmouth. Hello. And we've got the Labour MP, Stephen Kiminick.
4: Hello. Hi. How are you doing, Stephen? Yeah, very good, thanks. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Join the leadership campaign? Uh, yeah, I am, actually. I think it's been really good. And uh, I'm obviously a big team Lisa person. Lisa Andy, I think, has been doing a great job so far, really making waves.
2: Cool. Well, yes, the leadership candidates were narrowed down to five this week after Clive Ruiz dropped out of the race and Emily Thornberry scraped through to the next stage after MPs made their nominations. Lisa Nandy is making a lot of the early running and won plaudits for her performance in an interview with notoriously tough BBC politics veteran Andrew Neil. Here is Nandy taking on Neil.
4: What possible approach to the EU could unite Hampstead and Hull?
5: I think uh, opposition to a hard Brexit and a better vision of where Britain sits in the world. One of the things that I set out today was the lack of thinking that we've done on the left about what a commitment to internationalism now means. Let me give you an example of this.
4: But Matt, no, I'm talking about the EU well, think, and how you would approach I you and unite to Hampstead and Hull. I'm, I want to concentrate on what your attitude to the EU could be that would unite these two areas.
5: Can i just gently say to you that if you don't want me to talk in generalities, you are going to have to give me time to answer the question, and that will take more than one sentence because I, reuniting Hampstead and Hull to... that have been moving apart for 40 years... Exactly, takes and more I'm than asking a you what back. would
4: bring them together.
6: Paul Nandy was impressive, wasn't she, but can she win? That's a big question. Uh, I wrote a piece earlier this week about the fact that... What she's got going for her is that she's the only candidate you can see any real growth in support for. Um, you kind of know roughly where Long Bailey and Starmer's support is and Jess is out on her own and Thornbury as much as, you know, it was, a, it was nice to see her get in the final uh, uh, runoff. Um, and I was actually there when Afzal Khan gave her that, that magic domination uh, and the relief was amazing for her, p- very palpable. Despite that, it's, it, it seems that Nandy's the only one who actually can build support in terms of momentum. The big question is, how well-known is she? I mean, the, the Andrew Neil programme is really interesting because I thought, you know, that's, that's a test that every candidate should try and pass, there's no question. We're not trying to build up Andrew Neil into this great bit of the British constitution, you know, he has to interview the Prime Minister and he has to interview the Labour leader, but, you know, it's the kind of tough questioning that you're going to get and unfortunately it's not the kind of tough questioning we've seen um, people do well at in recent years. So um, Nandi Camp, I mean Stephen knows this better than anyone else, has got this sort of preferential strategy which is she's a lot of people's second choice Um, and it's that's great. I mean you even saw it in this poll that, um, that was put out last night by Labour List and Servation, even though she was only on 7% which looks terrible, she was a lot of people's second choice big thing for her is getting into second place. If she could therefore get into second place and all the second preferences, then she can win. She could beat Starmer um, and who, on, or even Long Bailey. You know, the, the really interesting question is how she gets there. And don't forget, um, uh, the whole point of this contest is it's MPs first, then it goes up to members and affiliates. The reason it's MPs first, people forget, and the reason it's always been MPs first is because they know MPs almost better than anyone else. They've seen them up close. They've seen them in the chamber. They've seen them not in the chamber. They've seen them privately, personally. So you have that sifting mechanism, which is actually quite valuable. The Tories use it brilliantly, let's be honest, to get leaders that can get them into power because of the people who know them best and not necessarily the people who've just seen a bit in the paper or a bit online as a party member might do. And so that's why I think it is quite interesting that Lisa Nandy and came third amongst the MPs. She's impressed a lot of them. She impressed me in the hustings. And the hope is, on her camp's point of view, that if she does that similarly impressive performance at every hustings, then maybe the, the members will sort of, the penny will begin to drop.
2: Yes, yeah, Stephen, as you said, you're supportive of Lisa. The polls aren't great for her at the moment. Um, how, how does she climb up to second place or even first
4: place? I think those polls are mainly about visibility. They are about name recognition. And, of course, people have a higher name recognition for Keir, and Rebecca, they've been in the shadow cabinet for the last few years, uh, Keir has had a very prominent role in the whole Brexit debate. So what we're seeing is that people are more aware of Rebecca and Keir, but the more they get to know Lisa, the more, the, the more they like what they see. Uh, so I think a huge part of this is maximum media exposure, and we saw with the Andrew Neil interview how well she does. The hustings, I think, are going to be key. Getting her up next to Keir and Rebecca. And if she performs as she did in the PLP hustings, uh, she will win those hustings. She clearly won the PLP hustings. I, I know I'm biased in this, but I think most commentators agreed and I most MPs, MPs were
6: non-aligned afterwards. Yeah, and they, they agreed. Yeah. yeah,
4: she smashed the PLP hustings. So we're seeing great potential there. The, the question is, will we be able to get her out uh, to members across the country? And I think one of the big advantage advantages that Lisa has is that we are the, we're, we're making that argument for turning the page. We've got to uh, learn the lessons of what happened up to the 12th of December—the absolute disaster of that election result—and you know I, I think we've got great candidates. I've got huge respect for Kia and Rebecca and Emily, but they were in that shadow cabinet; they were around the table when so many of those key decisions were made. Uh, candidates such as uh, as Lisa and Jess are very much coming from the backbenches turning the page. We need a new chapter and it and it's much more difficult for people who are in the shadow cabinet to make that argument.
2: Yeah, Rachel, you caught up with Jess Phillips last night. What do you make of her chances?
5: Um, well, I guess you'd describe Jess Phillips as the the moderate or the Blairite candidate which rules her out for a lot of people in the party that she would need to convince might rule her out for a lot of unions as well. I think what she does have, like uh, Stephen was saying about Lisa, is she's got a lot of name recognition so she's not doing as badly as you might expect in some polls, but um, I was chatting to her last night, and she did say that um, she's seen in the media as like, in these are her words, as like a, a Blairite devil. But um, she's actually having a better response from from members than that because she's got this big social media following, and she's got a. A different, more direct relationship with some members, but she's going to struggle to get affiliates to back her. However, her team was quite confident of getting all of enough CLPs on side to get through to the next round, so she could be surprising, but it, again, the Hustings will be key for chess as well, I think.
2: Yeah, on this Blairite thing, the new Labour MP Zahra Sultana said, I think yesterday, used her maiden speech to say that um, Blair had helped provi- preside over 40 years of Thatcherism. Uh, what do you make of that, Stephen?
4: I just am so disappointed when I hear those comments uh, it is a gift to the Conservatives and what utter nonsense uh, from 97 to 2010 we lifted millions out of poverty we delivered the minimum wage we created sure start peace in Northern Ireland uh, devolution huge huge achievements uh, you know the Labour Party is the greatest force for good that British politics has ever seen uh, and if you don't Believe that and understand that, then I think you've just got completely the wrong end of the stick. So I, I'm always very disappointed when I hear those things. Yes, uh, we didn't get everything right between 97 and 2010. Uh, certainly, things like the Iraq war, um, you know, I would never have supported that if I had been an MP at the time. And I think we could have done more for our industrial communities and have a, a real industrial strategy that ad- addressed the structural problems in the British economy, not just the cyclical ones. But uh, fundamentally, if you look at the balance sheet, we achieved a tremendous amount between 97 and 2010. And every time Labour colleagues make those kind of comments, they are simply handing a big gift to the Conservative Party.
6: That's why it was strange, I thought, actually, to see Angela Rayner retweeting that speech and saying excellent speech. I mean, what's going on there, do you think, Stephen? I mean, surely Angela Rayner, of all people, she's, she's publicly said, look, without Tony Blair, sure, start... I wouldn't be where I am today. She's kind of a unity figure, you she? You know, she actually knows that a Labour government has actually made a difference. And I found that very odd. I don't know if that's Angela just trying to tack too much to t- towards that sort of momentum bit of the party. I don't know.
4: I mean, you'd have to ask Angela herself. I, I, you know, I th- I've got a lot of respect for Angela in terms of what she's achieved in, in the education brief. And, you know, she has an amazing backstory. Uh, but I think it's a really bad idea to trash the legacy. Uh, it, you know, we we, we shouldn't just blindly uh, talk like zombies about how excellent everything was between 97 and 2010. But to trash the legacy is, is a completely unnecessary thing to do. And it's also, I mean, let's move forward. Let's have a leadership election now, which isn't so much about pinning labels on people. Are you a Blairite? Are you a Corbynite? Let's actually start talking about pulling the party back together and the country back together. And the more we uh, tweet and retweet and make speeches which uh, are uh, divisive in that way, in terms of faction here and faction X and faction Y, uh, the more it's going to be very, very difficult for whoever wins this leadership contest to move forward because what we don't want to have is a leadership contest that is is going to end up um, wounding the person who wins in the process. So, so far, the leadership candidates, I think, have done a, I think it's been a really refreshing debate. People have been robust, but they've also been very respectful of each other. And it has been outward looking and future facing. And I really think that that's the spirit that I hope that every single member of the parliamentary Labour Party will take a leaf out of the candidates book.
2: Um, We've we've gone back to Blair. I hope you won't mind if we go back a few more years to your Dad, Neil Kinnock. Oh, right, now that's Uh, really going back. Do you think any any candidate who wins this Labour leadership election could have a Neil Kinnock type of role to play, given the Tories are so far ahead? Uh,
4: We've certainly gotten an uphill struggle. Uh, And, of course, the big difference now is Scotland. You know, even things were awful in 1983, but we still had Scotland. Um, I agreed with the Prime Minister when he said that those who voted Tory in our so-called red wall seats were only lending their vote uh, because of Brexit, because of our in my opinion deeply mistaken and foolhardy idea of uh, backing a second referendum which I think I mean we were we were crippled by the Corbyn leadership and then the second referendum kind of finished the job. Now we're we're moving on from that. We need to make sure we move on for it, from it in a way which also recognises the mistakes we've made, acknowledges those mistakes, shows that we can listen and rebuild trust in those communities. And that's why I'm backing Lisa Nandy, because I think she's so far ahead of the rest in terms of being able to do that. Um, so those, those votes are there for the taking. We can win them back. And as Lisa said in her uh, speech in Dagenham, her launch speech, she, she said... The road back to victory is steep, but it doesn't have to be long. But it's all about having the right leader in place who will say and do the right things in that first six months of their tenure. Uh, So I I think we could well start to rebuild in a very similar way to to what my father did between 83 uh, and 87. Um, but. Uh, it, it really does require having the right leader with the, with the right understanding of the fundamental challenges that we face.
6: And do you think, actually, Stephen, that actually the new leader needs to do what your dad did in terms of really focusing on kicking out extremists within the party? Not just anti-Semites, but, you know, people whose values are simply not on the same page as the Labour Party. They're that far out. I mean, do you think there's, there's, that's got to be gripped?
4: I think there's an anti-Labour left... Which has actually infiltrated our party, and that's the test: Uh, is this person, is this member of of the Labour Party, somebody who has signed up, has managed to get their membership card, are they really Labour, or are they part of uh, a sort of Marxist sect, Um, or do is there a whiff of anti-Semitism about them? And we have to be absolutely ruthless on that and, and kick that out. I, I. I do also believe, though, that there is some very, very positive energy there in organizations like Momentum in terms of a lot of people who've joined because they want to do grassroots campaigning, because they want to get out and save the local bus stops, save the local library, do that community organizing, which is in the DNA of the Labour Party. So. I, don't, I think it's really important that the new next leader doesn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let's take the best of what we've seen with the, with the surge in, in, in membership and, and creating a kind of national movement for, for progress in our country, uh, but let's also be much smarter about identifying people who, are, who are, actually have a very different agenda, which is about undermining the Labour Party, uh, deselecting good MPs, and just uh, not being helpful at all in terms of training, our, uh, you know, aiming our fire, if you like, at, the, uh, at who we really need to be um, uh, opposing here, which is the Conservative Party, the old enemy.
2: Um, Rachel Paul, you're the Labour experts on the HuffPost team. Why isn't Rebecca Long-Bailey doing better mm. among momentum and what Labour? I think a couple of months ago, you guys were both saying... She looks
6: well, that quite poll good last that poll last night shows that she 's still a force to be reckoned with there 's no question mm. um, it 's got a big health warning that poll it was self selecting it was people who identified as Labour members and Labour list readers, that the website was drawn from, and not necessarily representative of the whole of the Labour Party. So there's a lot of health warnings. But nevertheless, Tim will be really pleased that she's ahead of Starmer even by a few points. And it does underline that, you know, as, as Stephen said, she's got a profile within the party. I think personally, outside the party, she's had zero profile. I think very, very few members of the public actually know many of these candidates. They might even just about recognise Keir Starmer, but that, even that's in question. So we're talking about within the Labour Party. Um, I think definitely she's got a profile. She's, there's that point about being continuity Corbyn. Although she hates the tag, actually it's quite useful to her because it's an instant brand. And if, if, if it does come down to a simple choice, well, do you want to keep something of Corbynism or do you want a proper break, then people might just say, well, I want to keep something that's close to him. So, yeah, but I, we say she's done badly in the race. Don't forget, that's only in terms of Starmer doing the MPs bit. Um, we will yet to see more polls, I think, and let's see how she does in the Hustings, as Stephen says. The Hustings is a really, really important test of any politician. And it's quite reassuring, this modern age, actually, of of Twitter and everything else, that actually what you say in a debate really does still matter.
2: Uh, Well, whoever's the new Labour leader is going to have to deal with Brexit, Uh, and Boris Johnson's deal has sailed through the Commons with little trouble in the last week. What a difference an election makes Uh, But battle lines are already being drawn for the next stage of negotiations when it looks like the EU will try to get the UK to sign up to all sorts of regulations as part of a so-called level playing field. British MEPs are meanwhile packing up to leave Europe. Here's
0: one, the Brexit Party's Nigel Farage. After three and a half years of deception and dishonesty, we will be leaving this prison of nations at the end of January. we won't become a third country, as I've been hearing this morning. No, we're going to become an independent, self-governing nation. And you can delude yourselves this morning inside this cathedral that all is well. Uh, but it isn't. It isn't. People do not want to be run and governed by faceless bureaucrats like Michel and von der Leyen. Did you hear them earlier? Dull as ditch water. You're being rejected. And it's great news that in Poland, Opinion polls now show a majority of polls think they'd be better off outside the European Union. Brexit is the beginning of the end of this project. We are giving leadership and and we'll take it to a Europe of sovereign states working together, being friends together, but not being rung by the gang down at the middle there.
2: Paul, Farage called Michel Barnier and Ursula von der Leyen dull as ditch water, but don't they hold all the cards in the next stage of negotiations? I don't think they
6: do hold all the cards, because at the end of the day, we've got a Prime Minister who's just got a massive majority. So that, the, 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 the landscape's changed in that sense, in terms of his political power. Um, so on the one level, they're really pleased that actually they've got some, someone they can finally deal with whose word will really matter, and he can do what, what he says, unlike Theresa May, you know. Um... um at the same time, it sounds like the rhetoric from Number Ten is he's not bluffing about this whole thing about well, he doesn't want an extension, so there won't be an extension. So whatever deal we come up with before the end of the year has, has got to be done. The big question, and it's a totally unresolved one, is you know what kind of Brexit it is, and you know whether how aligned or non-aligned it is. Um, and we've been talking about this before, but those MPs, Tory MPs in the Red Wall. You know, how, how hard a Brexit do they want? Do, are they listening to their local businesses? And, or are they maybe even listening to their local constituents still? Many of whom actually were happy with the idea of no deal. Now, you might say they're misguided, and it's not in their own self interest if their local factory goes down. But a lot of them were so determined to have Brexit that, you know, it sounded like, well, we're going to have our own Brexit. I remember talking to, uh, last night even, talking to one of those Tory MPs in front of those seats saying, I said, how do you square this? Um, Everyone assumes you're somehow going to be pressuring the Prime Minister to sort of back off and have a soft Brexit because it will really help manufacturing to have alignment. And one of the Tory MPs said to me, no, that's not what we're going to do. We want, total maximum divergence because we want to raise workers' standards we want to raise environmental standards we think we can be world leaders now you might say it's pie in the sky but that's what they think
2: you don't need to diverge to do that well
6: do no i know but they think they can have their own separate standards and somehow it can mirror the eu's yeah. um i mean whether that's pie in the sky we'll see
2: yeah Stephen what do you reckon what type of brexit do you think we might end up with and you've done a lot of work on before the election and before Boris Johnson took over trying to find an optimum Brexit as well. What do you think we might end up with under Boris Johnson and what do you think maybe Labour should now argue for?
4: I think that the political rhetoric, I agree with uh, Paul, the political rhetoric coming out of number 10 and the entire Conservative Party almost comprehensively now is that they want to diverge. don't think the levels of understanding of what that means are anything like as high as the levels of the rhetoric that we're hearing. Because they keep saying, well, there'll be no tariffs and quotas through uh, a free trade agreement. But that is also actually uh, conditional on convergence. Uh, The EU has made it absolutely clear that if there is divergence on uh, industrial product standards, on environmental standards, consumer standards, workers' rights, state aid provisions, Uh, they will use tariffs and quotas. So uh, there seems to be a complete lack of understanding of the cost of divergence. And then, of course, it's not just the the, the very clear transactional cost in terms of pounds, shillings and pence. It's also the huge administrative cost of the additional paperwork and bureaucracy that businesses will have to go through. So it's very easy indeed to have this throwaway comment about we're going to take back control of our money laws and borders and it's going to be all about divergence. I don't think the British business community is anything like as comfortable as the Conservative Party is with that rhetoric. And I think over the coming months we're going to see uh, a number of key business leaders looking on with horror as we see this divergence policy being pushed through and and realizing what it's actually going to cost. Uh, and that will then translate into jobs. I mean, I, I, I think that we, as, I mean, as you said, Arja, I, I've been advocating a, a, um, a closely aligned Brexit. I've always felt that fifty two forty eight was a mandate to move house but stay in the same neighbourhood. And that is based on a very base, basic recognition, which is that the European Union is a regulatory superpower. And whether we like it or not, we are in the orbit of that superpower just because of geography. There are 500 million consumers on our doorstep and our businesses rely on access to those uh, consumers in a a frictionless way. So whichever way you cut it, it's going to cost you to diverge from that. And I think there's been such a lack of honesty about the trade-offs that come with divergence. And and now, I mean, the bizarre thing about the last three years is we've, there's been a huge amount of heat and light about it, but the, by far the most important chapter in the Brexit story is about to start, by far the most important. But
2: it's going to be interesting, isn't it, with Boris Johnson's 80-seat majority, because stuff might be going to Helena Hancock in the negotiations, and actually we probably won't see the kind of political chaos or how can it be stopped if it's going the wrong way, what what can you do really? That's
4: absolutely right, it can't be, and and they've even removed from the withdrawal bill the ability of Parliament to be consulted uh, on on key stages of the negotiations, the negotiating mandate and sign off etc. So Parliament has essentially been sidelined, so this One Nation Prime Minister keeps talking about wanting a One Nation Conservative Party, is completely removing Parliament, has removed the provisions around child refugees. Uh, and it has sort of just gone hell for leather in one particular direction, rather than I think trying to have an approach to Brexit which could actually reunite our deeply divided country.
2: Um, we saw saw a little hint, Rachel, of the kind of flip side of this, which is uh, the trade deals we'll be looking to do with other countries in terms of what wasn't in the yeah, agriculture bill. bill.
5: Yeah, um, so this is kind of farming communities very worried about this. Um, it's. The new bill does not include a binding commitment on food standards for imports. So that could speak to in the future sort of the chlorinated chicken from a US-UK trade deal or hormone-treated beef, Um, our uh, farmers kind of being undercut with with foreign imports. But at the same time, I know we've been talking about the sort of all-will-have-cake strategy that Boris Johnson still has post-election. We had the uh, Environment Secretary Theresa Villiers saying, um this won't happen you know we, we won't have um, any chlorinated chicken this this is absolute no from me but you have a sort of us negotiators already saying that's not realistic so
6: we'll see if she's there in post anywhere at the end of the, <laughs> well, end of the <laughs> month or, or early next <laughs> we'll month.
4: definitely do a reshuffle
6: special or two in a couple <laughs> yes. of weeks.
4: the other key thing on it is that the the tories keep saying well we're already so integrated that uh it's not like another trade deal which is starting from zero and building up But the EU's uh, policy on this is, it's not where you are on the 1st uh, of January 2021, it is the fact that once you get to the 1st of January 2021, and you have the right to diverge, you will be treated as if you've diverged. That's another part of this whole debate that has not been explored properly at all. It's not about uh, disintegrating in that way, it's about as soon as you have the right to diverge, you will be treated as a third country. No matter where you are in terms of the alignment, so if they, if if the Tories' negotiating strategy is all about winning the right to diverge, that's all it's going to take for the barriers to come up.
2: I just wanted to ask you about um, something Lisa Nandy said last night and, and yesterday, which she launched a pretty spirited defence of free movement. Now, when you were drawing up your own Brexit plans, you recognised that you did have to reform or or end free movement if we left the EU. Are you concerned that? Labour is going to end up going into a position where, even under, at least under your favoured leadership candidate, where it could be backing free movement?
4: I mean, in a a sense, it's a discussion that's going to be led by the government, because if they're going to push through this points-based system, it's, we're not in the driving seat. Ah, so you're saying it to the members to
2: get in, and then it doesn't matter by the time. Uh, No, I'm
4: (laughs) sorry, I'm just trying to give a bit of of context in terms of my thinking on all of this, um, which is that this is going to be more about holding the government to, to account on their points-based system and making sure that it's fair and humane and is also responding to the needs of our economy and also responding to the need to ensure that we have strong and cohesive communities. I think that's where Lisa's coming from in the sense of she wants those outcomes, an economy that works for everyone and, and you know integrated and, and cohesive communities. Uh, my my view is that free the free movement of labor was a problem in that sense because it people did feel that it was having an impact particularly in areas where there was a, a surge and that had an impact on that sense of cohesion in certain communities and I think that it's it's right that we uh, campaign for a system uh, that is um, fair and humane and is also where people trust the system and that it there is regulation in the system because if you have a system that isn't trusted by the public, nobody wins from that. Those people coming into the country don't win because they're treated with more suspicion and resentment. The economy doesn't benefit from that because you can end up with a race to the bottom on terms and conditions. And the only people who actually benefit are unscrupulous employers. So there's no there's no benefit from all of that. I, I think when I think when Lisa is talking about free movement of labor, she is saying it has to be married with uh, really cracking down hard on employers who don't pay the minimum wage, really cracking down on strengthening our trade unions so they've got more collective bargaining and that they can protect terms and conditions. So I I, I think my reading of what Lisa is saying, you have to ask this yourself, (laughs) is, well, yes to uh, being open to uh, immigration, which adds value to our society and to our economy, no to having an immigration system which just enables uh, undercutting, uh, and a race to the bottom.
2: Are realistically any of the Labour leadership candidates going to say we need to end free movement?
6: I don't know. It's a really tricky um, uh, tightrope to walk down, isn't it? Because, you know, you, it's, it's very difficult, particularly within the Labour Party. I thought Lisa and Andy did a pretty good job of trying to explain how you can be pro-migration, but at the same time accept you've got to respond to concerns of people um, in those communities who, for whatever reason, have a perception that immigration might harm them. It's, and it's often a perception, not a reality. But uh, she made a good point, which is actually you, you need to look even deeper than that and say, well, what is the real cause for their insecurity about their jobs and everything else? Um, and it's a case that Corbyn tried to make, but didn't make it that convincingly in the election. So it, maybe it's just a question of a better communicator. But certainly... It's got to be ramming home this fundamental point that she made again last night, and she said to us before, is if you're you're a working class woman in somewhere like Wigan, and you're told all the time by the Remainers, look, we've got to keep free movement because we need nurses from Spain, and you're at the same time, your government is saying, actually, we're going to remove the, the chance for you to become a nurse by removing the nurse's bursary, No wonder you think these people are talking a different language. And I thought that was one of the most powerful points she's been making. And that, in a nutshell, has been the problem with Brexit. And no one's been saying that properly.
2: Away from Brexit, Boris Johnson's first month has also given us some clues as to where this Tory government is heading. The PM has had to walk a tightrope between allying with the US or Europe on the Iran crisis. And he's intervened to bail out the failing airline Flybe in the name of boosting the region's. Johnson has also caused some confusion earlier this week on the Iran nuclear deal, which Britain officially supports. Here he is. The problem with the, the agreement is that from
3: the American perspective, it's a flawed agreement, it expires, plus it was negotiated by President Obama. And it has, from their point of view, it has many, many faults. Well, hmm. if we're going to get rid of it, let's replace it. And let's replace it with the Trump deal. Okay. That's what we need to see. And I think that would be a great way forward. President Trump is a great deal maker uh, by his own account and, and many others. Let's, let's work together to replace the JCPOA okay. and get
2: the Trump deal instead. Paul, what are your early impressions of Johnsonism, as we've dubbed it in the office?
6: You know what? What's really worrying for Labour is if Johnsonism works out, Labour could be out of power for quite a while because Johnsonism in some ways takes a bit of everything. It takes a bit of Blairism. We've seen it this week. Tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime was parroted at cabinet level by every single cabinet minister. The PM went round the room and said every department should be a criminal justice department. And by that he meant you should be looking at the causes of crime as well as this whole agenda about being tough on crime. Very Blairite. Is a dollop of brownism, a lot of and Mandelsonism, you might say. Regional investment, investing in skills, putting the money, you know, a, 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 almost like seed funding for various areas is ahead of the game on science and tech. There's no question. Thanks to Dominic Cummings, it's something that Labour should be ahead of but isn't is nowhere at the race. I mean, a good example of that is my son, who's a 19-year-old during the last general election, said. What's Labour's policy on R&D? And, and I said, and he said, it looks like they're going to be cutting capital for R&D because of this other. Stuff, but the Tories are going to put more, more money into science. What's going on? You've got a very smart he's, or he's a very smart. He's <laughs> into science and everything else. And I struggled to tell him. I said, well, looks like yeah, the Tories have got a better policy. Um, they're putting more money on science. And that's a forward-looking agenda that Johnson is quite smart on. You might even argue his stuff on gigabit broadband is actually more realistic than what Labour was offering last time. So the, the thing is, Johnsonism looks like it, it's mopping up everything else. And at the same time, you saw really when he was the mayor of London, at the same time as he he did a lot of the stuff like supporting kids in poor areas through various schemes when he was in in London, pumping money into bits of public transport. He also kept the council taxes low uh, and tried to persuade the sort of right of the party or the free market bit of the party. Actually, he wasn't a spendthrift and so it's it's really difficult. He's this target that moves and it's hard to, to to shoot a moving target, you know, and it's and I think for an opposition that's quite tough. And what about on foreign
2: affairs though? We've just seen Boris Johnson talking about a Trump deal to replace the Iran nuclear deal. He's got a a difficult balancing act.
6: Well, again there, I hate to say it, I'm not sounding like an apologist for Boris Johnson, <laughs> as we keep calling him, not Boris, Boris Johnson. I think we're um, over that. Um, <laughs> i got fined for saying Boris too many times before. Um, <laughs> I hate to say it like an apologist for him, but this week, yeah, uh, it sounds crass, him saying, I want a Trump deal, and sounds like he's bending over backwards to give whatever Trump wants on Iran. But there is a method in that madness, which is, if you say to Trump, can you come up with a deal, please? I think you're a brilliant negotiator. And then you're
2: not you're, Barack Obama. Yeah, and you're really not Barack Obama. And ever. you're pushing
6: him towards negotiation, some kind of negotiation. That's a, a big win, if it ever happens. The problem is it's not happened so far since he floated this at the UN last year. Trump hasn't. But Trump tweeted this week, yeah, good idea. Thanks, Boris. Now, if there's any real beef in that and, and Trump does tell all his diplomats, could you, could you actually come up with some kind of plan? then you never know. The, the Iranians certainly don't want anything that's a non-diplomatic solution. You know, they're sick of sanctions um, and they're certainly not in the mood for war, obviously, given their own situation. So, again, it's Johnsonism might work out on the face of it. And the, I think Labour's big problem is to do what Emily Thornbury has been doing, which is just to focus all on that you are Trump's poodle. Mm. And if you do that, and you do that for several years, yeah, it might make you feel good. But what if, at the end of the day, somehow Trump you know defies people as he did originally on north korea it hasn't lasted but on north korea people were surprised well oh, actually maybe this guy isn't as bonkers as he seems
2: yeah you worried Stephen, by johnsonism
4: i think on foreign policy paul's right that the way to be an opposition on foreign policy is to be robust but constructive and when uh, Uh, a massively important action like the assassination of Soleimani takes place, and you don't even get a phone call. I do think it's the opposition's job to say, well, British lives are actually at stake here, and it is outrageous that our so-called special relationship ally has done this without uh, even informing us um, in advance. Uh, But I agree that it would not be the right way to go to just kind of constantly... Um, harangue about that and of course our interest is in building peace in the Middle East in that desperately troubled area of the world but I also think there has been real mixed signals on it because Boris Johnson came out and said Trump deal and then Dominic Raab had to come to the dispatch box the next day and clarify that we're still absolutely committed to the JCPOA so mixed messages are not helpful either and I'm afraid you know let's not just start aping Donald Trump in, in the approach to to international politics because I think that would be a very bad road to go down. On domestic uh, policy, yes. I mean, I think it's absolutely clear the strategy is for the Tories to park their tanks on our lawn. Um, the fact is they're facing real economic problems. I mean, the UK economy only grew by 0.1% in the three months to uh, December. That's a really good point, yeah. But there is a creaking infrastructure. There's a massive chasm between London and the South East uh, and the rest of the country. And I also think there's ideological division in the Conservative Party. Let's not f- forget that Boris Johnson's Chancellor, Sajid Javid, is an out-and-out out, out Thatcherite. I mean, he's a, he's a libertarian, free-market... It has the answer to everything, Tory, so uh, is Boris Johnson going to actually be able to reconcile those ideological differences within his own cons- within his own party and parliamentary party
2: it 's interesting actually, I was speaking to a, a Tory MP who m- might you might classify in that camp about the flyby rescue, mm. uh, and this MP said it showed three things: one that it 's not an economically liberal government two, that they're willing to step in to save jobs in areas w- which they care about, and
4: three, that the
2: Treasury wasn't going to stop it.
6: That's interesting, isn't it? Interesting.
4: Yes, and you know, with all the threats of a reshuffle coming down the road, <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> I can see why Sajid Javid might be deeply uncomfortable with some of this stuff just when I look at, as I read his political philosophy, and, and large numbers of, of Conservatives, you know, they believe in a small state. So, but Boris Johnson has this 80-seat majority, uh, some of the seats that have come in that they haven't held since the 1930s, this is this is changing the DNA of the Conservative Party potentially, or will it create a deeper kind of fissure in, in the party? Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's not going to be all uh, plain sailing. And I also think, you know, we've got to point out when we see the hypocrisy, this, this one nation thing, you know, when the mask slips, when you look, At what they did on the withdrawal agreement removing uh, right protecting rights for refugees removing workers rights no real uh, reality realism there around a level playing field uh, provisions on environmental standards consumer standards when the mask slips uh, you do see I think uh, another side to Boris Johnson uh, coming out and and yeah the big question is how, how effectively will they be able to also deliver because expectations are incredibly high and they're talking about massive change in terms of infrastructure and industrial policy but these things take time uh, to come through the system and if they are knocked off course by a Brexit that goes badly wrong because it uh, shrinks the British economy uh, then there's going to be a very different debate I think going on in British politics.
2: Um, Rachel Johnson's ple- playing clever politics as well, straight away, calling for cross party talks on social care within 100 days.
5: So that would be by the end of March. So that would, yeah. that, um, obviously, new Labour leader comes in April 4th. So it forces all of the Labour, Labour, Labour leadership candidates to make a decision as well. Um, social care costs a lot of money. And um, we've got people like the Alzheimer's Society suggesting 40 billion could come out of the families of. Alzheimer's and/or dementia sufferers by the time of the next election. So it's a massive cost. Um, experts are saying 10 billion needed now. Um, all there was in the Conservative manifesto was um, an extra billion a year for councils um, and the continuation of the social care pre- precept. So it's, it's a lot of money, and see, people need to make a decision on what to do, and it forces people in the Lib Party to consider. Um, if they're going to continue to offer, as they did at the election, free stuff um, and what kind of corner that pushes them into. So, yeah, it might be more difficult for Labour than it might be for the Conservatives at the minute. Yeah, he's
2: kind of kicked the ball into the other side of the court, really, hasn't he, to mix my sporting?
6: He has. Yes, well, he has, <laughs> on the level playing field. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the interesting thing, though, about this Johnsonism is that actually, and you talked to someone yesterday and you put it in your piece, didn't you, is there's this interesting idea, which is it will be almost like a tiger economy once we've yeah. left Brexit. And tiger economies, what they're famous for, they have a chunk of protectionism to keep them healthy, to, to start off a nascent economy... And then once the protectionism sort of slowly wound down, then they open themselves to free markets and they could have, You know, South Korea is a very good example. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't just go hell for leather, open your markets, get swamped by everyone else. You have a chunk... And China certainly does it. You know, so you protect your economy and that's why... In, it, in key areas. In key areas, yeah. not overall. You make sure that you're an open economy in lots of other ways. <laughs> but, you know, you can see that working and... I think that as a strategy, as I say, that's almost brownite in some ways. Um, But uh, Rachel's absolutely right. I think over time, things like bread and butter issues, like council cuts, which are baked in... To the you know the spending plans, and I can't see them getting out of them, how, unless they have a big big change in their taxation policy to put money into <laughs> local councils. That kind of stuff will really eat away at Tory support over time. I think because if you do see your so your your youth centre still closing, your Sure Start still closing, you're thinking, hold on, what what's this all about? And that's where I would have thought a new Labour leader could be quite effective. However, there could be. You know, that it, it, I wouldn't put it out of, uh, of the question that Boris could late, the second half of a term, suddenly find loads of money for councils and mm-hmm. loads of money for all the stuff that will help him and get re-elected. So, you know, it's not
2: easy. <laughs> yeah, Stephen, what did you make of the flyby rescue? Because obviously you've been lobbying on, on behalf of Port Talbot Steelworks for a number of years now. Would you like to see similar measures taken now? Boris Johnson set a precedent, has he, and... terms of stepping
4: in I've always felt that the British government within the EU did far less than it could if you look at the way that the French and the Germans and the Italians operate they do uh, aid industry Uh, they do make sure they have a public procurement policy which is actually going to deliver value for uh, local providers Uh, they know how to play the game and we always had this culture in this country of gold plating EU regulations and then blaming the EU when in fact it's all about the way it's interpreted so if we can interpret the rules uh, and of course then it depends on what sort of Brexit we have and that goes back to the conversation about convergence and particularly state aid but okay if we do have a completely um, isolated approach to state aid in terms of isolating ourselves from the EU system then I suppose there is more scope for government intervention but actually when you talk to steel workers they do not want to be treated like a charity. They don't want to be subsidized by it to the hilt. They know that they make the best deal that money can buy. Uh, but they've been have, had one hand tied behind their back because we've had such a lack of industrial sat- strategy, so little support for research and development, uh, energy costs twice as much as our competitors, no and public from procurement China. straight and dumping from China, where the UK government was actually part a ringleader of a, a group of countries that were stopping the EU taking uh, more uh, yeah. harsh measures against yeah. China to stop the dumping. So, um, you know. Let's, okay, let's see, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, let's see if all of this rhetoric is going to be converted into reality about having a more active state. The thing that's a great regret to me is we could have had a more active state within the EU context with no problem uh, whatsoever, but now all those excuses have gone. Uh, all of that scapegoating the European Union has gone. And now it is a full focus on Boris Johnson to deliver what he said he's going to deliver. Expectations are extremely high. Um, and in, in politics, sometimes people say you should over-promise and uh, uh, under-promise and
1: over-deliver. <laughs> under-promise and over-deliver.
4: Uh, 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 it looks to me like Boris Johnson is at great risk of doing the opposite of that, of over-promising and under-delivering.
5: Do you think there is a particularly strong case for, for Fly bees rescue?
4: I think with Flybe, um, you know, it, it, the big question there is, is the reason for their almost collapse because of mismanagement, uh, because of poor leadership? Then I, if that is the case, then I think it's right for the government to step in and support but that support needs to be very strongly conditional on seeing a proper business plan and a management strategy that's going to turn the business around and that should be time bound and if they haven't delivered to that within those uh, constraints and time limits uh, you know then I think you you can't you can't treat business like a charity because in in the end that is never going to work. Yeah, you uh, can't
2: have this bizarre state run regional airline at the yeah. end of the day can you?
4: No you can't and oh whatever happens with Brexit you know you even can end up then in contravening WTO terms so even if we end up on the hardest of hard Brexit which is WTO also has rules on state aid so if you end up contravening WTO rules on state aid then you've got to withdraw the state aid and and if the business is floating only on the basis of state aid that is an extremely risky and precarious place to be and that's not good for anybody in terms of their jobs and and their livelihoods so I would say you know, we very large strings need to be attached to any government support.
2: Well, it's going to be a really interesting few months ahead, I'm sure. But uh, now it's time for the quiz. Yay, we love the quiz. Uh, <laughs> and we couldn't get through the podcast without mentioning Big Ben.
6: Oh my god! So This week's
2: quiz <laughs> is all about <laughs> Big Ben. I thought it was going to be about bongs. <laughs> um, just pipe up with the answer when you've uh, when you, if you think when you know what it is. First one's quite easy. In 2017, which MP was spotted weeping as Big Ben bonged for a final time before renovations? Was it Steve
6: Pound? I thought
5: it was Mark
4: Frontier. Yes, star. it was Stephen I Pound. I was there, took a video of him. Yeah, <laughs> you know, th- This guy's going to clean the floor with us. No, with he lost last week to Rachel, to, 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 Rachel I Reeves. I that's oh, Rachel, Rachel Reeves. <laughs> <And right laughs> now the
2: pressure's really on. Yeah. <laughs> so Stephen Pound, yeah, it was Stephen Pound, the Labour MP. He told me the day before, while I was on the Sunday shift... That he was going to cry. Gig, ...that he was going to hold a vigil uh, <laughs> with colleagues and they'd gather around with their heads bowed but hope in their hearts.
6: We missed him. Sure enough, we? he turned up. I'm not sure him. there's
2: anyone else miss, there. We missed Poundy. <laughs> yeah. <a bit>. yeah. <laughs> um, second one. In 1940, the silent minute was introduced. What was it, and what time was it?
6: God, I don't know. No, it? I. Know. Silent minute. to do with the war. Yeah. Crikey. Was it that it didn't bong at midnight because in the middle at uh, midnight, but it bonged at midday? Because of bombers coming over? and
4: No, coming, it's not no, close enough.
6: No, no, <laughs> it's a, it's a,
5: Because it's of air raids of, of some kind? It,
4: it is war-related. Yeah, it's bound to be because of the war. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's as far as we've got.
5: <laughs> yeah, something to do with the war. So, no, <laughs> no.
2: Um, so at 9pm before the BBC radio news, the, ben, the Big Ben would fall silent so that um, people could silently contemplate and pray for those on the battlefields.
5: Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Wow. Uh, final gump. Did you know that during the war um, Stormont was completely painted black so that um, bombers couldn't see it? Oh, that is interesting. Wow. Wouldn't they, to just, black, dumps, black, so well, they just see it. a massive black? I thought would not just see a massive
4: black building, I guess, for night. I like yeah. the way you do that, Richard. You're worried that you might not be able to answer any of these questions, so you thought yeah. you'd just yeah. Yeah. something. <laughs> really I'm going to give you a point. That's, that's, like, oh, <laughs> that's, that's
5: <laughs> a great
6: <laughs> fact. I'm going to give you a point. It's a draw. wonder if the Rolling Stones were inspired by that, painted black? No, no, no. Going off somewhere else. Yeah. Last <laughs> question
2: What was dubbed the democracy lamp, and why was there a row over it?
6: Democracy lamp. <laughs> Wow. Is this historic? Is this old? Is back to
4: renovations,
6: 2017.
4: 2017. Democracy lamp. <sighs> Come on, Stephen. Wow, I've Come just on. I, I did, how many questions did Rachel Reeves get, right? Well, we only have three. She got, she two. got two. <laughs> two out of three, to yeah. be fair. I'm just nowhere. Um, democracy lamp in
5: 2017. This is hard, though. You yeah, yeah, can be yeah, forgiven. Yeah. This it's is hard. hard.
4: Yeah, yeah, I'm going to ask What that, actually,
5: Democracy
6: lamp? Um, what on... Um, <laughs> oh, I don't know. don't know. I'm no? Struggling. No is there a light within Big Ben or something? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah,
2: it's on top of Big Ben. Right. It's the it's the Ayrton light. Oh. And ever since the Second World War, it has shined when Parliament is sitting. Oh. And some, maybe just one MP got very exercised about the fact it was going to be off during the renovations. Right. And the Telegraph did a, Chopper did a classic, uh... Yeah, uh enraged MPs piece. (laughs) (laughs) Nigel Evans told the Telegraph, health and safety laws have achieved what nobody other than the Luftwaffe has done since the Second World War. (laughs) (laughs) Turning off this light is one step too far.
6: (laughs) That's a
2: Was he humming the tune to the damn bus? <laughs> 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 I don't know said
4: that. Yeah, from the back
2: benches. Yeah. <laughs> <I> <laughs> right. Unfortunately, that's clears. all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me. And make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone, or follow the link in the episode notes. Um, We'll just leave you with the most ridiculous moment of the entire Big Ben saga so far when ITV's This Morning had a young girl called Phoebe come on the show and come up with her idea for replacing the bongs. Here she is.
0: Okay, off you go.
5: Bim-bom, bim-bom. Bim-bom, bim-bom. Bim-bom, bim-bom. Bim-bom, bim-bom.
1: Very good.